Ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, uh, my name is Andris Sprutz and I am Director of Latvian Institute of International Affairs and today I, I have the pleasure to welcome all of you to the talk series about US foreign policy under the new administration. The United States uh, have been uh, an indispensable nation globally and for the Baltic countries. And now we have a new president in the White House. Uh, and in partnership with US Embassy in Latvia and our distinguished speakers, we have a great opportunity to learn more about presidential, uh, presidential transition and what it means for the world and the Baltic states. And today, it's a great pleasure to uh, an honor to have Heather Conley with us joining conversa conversation. Uh, Heather Conley is a, I would say, a good friend of the Baltic countries, uh, very knowledgeable of the region, a prominent policy analyst, uh, a senior vice president for Europe Asia and the Arctic and director of Europe program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And Heather Conley has an extensive biography, including being a deputy assistant secretary of the state in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs during the President's Bush administration. Uh, Heather, I have a great pleasure to see you and to welcome you today. So thank you for joining us. Andres, thank you. It is so wonderful to see you. It's such a great privilege and pleasure to be a part of your podcast. Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Absolutely. I am sure that your insights would be extremely valuable to understand more about where the U.S. foreign policy is going, what we can expect, what are our relations uh, or how they are being influenced, and also what is a sort of uh, the impact on a global order and a global structure on unilateralism, multilateralism trends, what we have seen in the past. So uh, my first question would be, uh, on uh, some sort of uh, continuity or uh, the new uh, transition period in uh, U.S. foreign policy. Does actually presidential transition matter for foreign policy? Because you have said yourself that continuity always is present in U.S. foreign policy, regardless who is the president, who is just a one entity in decision-making process. Yes, I mean, there is great continuity in U.S. foreign and security policy. Um, and we, I'm, we're going to jump into that on Russia policy, I think on U.S. policy towards the Middle East and Indo-Pacific region. There's going to be great continuity. But I, I think we have to be very clear that there's going to be a profound transition and profound change in how the White House, very specifically the White House and the president, views allies, views Europe in particular. And, and in, in many ways, President Trump was, a, a, was an outlier uh, in US policy really since um, the, the post-World War II era, viewing allies as, as foes, as drains on American power and treasure. And now in President Biden, you, you probably have the most transatlantist uh, American president that we've had in decades that knows uh, so many of the key players, feels the importance of this relationship in the marrow of his bones. Um, and so we have this historic opportunity uh, to re-enliven the, the transatlantic relationship uh, in particular. But, uh, but, you know, I think we also have to be very clear-eyed here. Um, trust has been 
profoundly broken uh, between uh, our European leaders as they look to the US, as I like to say, and there are 74 million reasons why um, there is hesitancy because there's not uh, you know, confidence across European capitals that the same animal, political animal spirits that brought President Trump into the White House in 2016 may return in 2024. So Joe Biden is deep, a deep transatlanticist, but he's facing a very skeptical uh, transatlantic relationship that hasn't really had a lot of focus and attention, I would argue, for the last 15 or 20 years. So let's roll up our sleeves. We got some good conditions here, but the task is going to be absolutely daunting. Mm, absolutely. I think that, of course, there will be a lot of challenges and at least from our side, it looks it's not just about transatlantic linkage and transatlantic challenges and restoring trust, but also domestic environments within the United States, within also European countries. So we see during the COVID crisis more protectionism, more nationalism in a sense, more focusing on our own societies. Would you see that also this could be the additional challenge? That what also the Joe Biden has mentioned that his foreign policy will be the foreign policy for US middle class. So actually somehow more focusing on domestic politics. So perhaps also continuing some policies of the protectionism or mercantile gains. How you would see that or it would be sort of clear cut with the Trumpism and Trump foreign policy and this sort of multilateralism and solidarity would absolutely dominate the agenda. So I think every U.S. president comes into office saying, I am going to focus on the domestic agenda. Even George W. Bush said, you know, nation building begins at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and then his presidency was absolutely transformed after the 9-11 attack. So I think every uh, American president has a, a very clear agenda. And then events uh, sometimes alter that, uh, certainly that agenda. But you're absolutely right. Uh, president Biden and his administration the most significant and single task ahead of them right now is uh, getting a COVID uh, relief bill passed through a, a deeply polarized Congress in order to get uh, relief to the American people and to hasten vaccine distribution. And I think that's something that we share uh, across the EU as well. Um, we, we're so grateful we have vaccine development now, but we have to get it distributed. We have to get economic recovery uh, up, and, up and running. So that will certainly be uh, the Biden administration's focus as they, you know, a lot of the energy is just now getting cabinet secretaries confirmed and the pandemic, but also uh, the impeachment trial and things have slowed that process down. You need to get people in place. They need to, you know, really jumpstart a lot of work because in the American system, uh, and this is the unfortunate part, really a, a new administration has about 12 maybe no more than 18 months to get all the issues that they want to get out and moving before the midterm elections in 2022. Yeah. And then of course, we're immediately in a 2024 presidential cycle, our politics never end. So there is a real focus to get immediate accomplishments. A lot of it is undoing what the Trump administration has done. And that I have to say for me watching American politics, uh, new presidents spend all of their time unraveling what their predecessor did, and that doesn't necessarily advance uh, an agenda. And that's part of the, the, the byproduct of our deep polarization and this lack of 
bipartisan agreement on some of the, the key uh, issues to help continue to develop the United States economically and from an infrastructure perspective as well. Thank you, Heather. And if you would have to define top priorities of foreign policy, what could be, what we can expect in the coming years? What would be the top three priorities, if I may sort of a little bit simplify the sort of my question? So what you would define as, as, uh, uh, as top priorities on agenda of Joe Biden in coming years? Yeah, I mean, again, I think President Biden and, and his new team have made this very clear. I mean, priority number one is repairing alliances, repairing the damage mm. that uh, took place over the last four years with our allies in Europe and our allies in the Indo-Pacific region. So, you know, but I, I, I know we'll unpack that probably a little bit, but you can't just say those words. You actually have to do the deep, deep work and compromise to begin to repair those relationships. And, and I think we have to give them a little time to, to start working on that. Um, the Biden administration has been very clear that climate and addressing climate is going to be uh, an overarching theme of everything they do, both domestically as well as uh, in, in the foreign policy uh, range. And of course, the appointment of uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry as a a very unique position as a special envoy as a former secretary of state certainly tells you that the, the diplomacy of climate uh, and, and the return of multilateralism to, to approach that subject that President Biden at the Munich Security Conference virtual uh, seminar noted that the U.S. is going to be hosting a summit on um, a leaders summit on Earth Day. You're seeing where the U.S. wants to regain a little of the leadership and that and that's that's great for transatlantic relations because Europe has always viewed climate as one of its top foreign policy priorities. So we have an immediate uh, alignment uh, there. And then I would say um, China, obviously, yeah. uh, trying to uh, work much more closely with allies and partners together on a strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. That one's going to be more challenging uh, with our European partners for sure. We have different. Um, issues. Uh, the United States has a massive security posture challenge in the Indo-Pacific that our European partners do not share. Um, the, unfortunately, that the EU went ahead with the comprehensive agreement on investment with China without consultation with the Biden administration. That was a, a missed opportunity and, and a real emotional reaction to the four years of the Trump administration. Um, but uh, you're going to see NATO talk more about China, the US-EU relationship talk more about uh, China, um, and then, you know, finally, obviously, the pandemic and working together, whether that's on um, COVAX and providing vaccinations to countries that are unable to do this themselves, uh, working more closely in developing um, extra health surveillance or vaccine development and production that will of course be part and parcel of, of the conversation as well. So the agenda is extraordinary and we didn't even talk about Russia yet. We didn't even talk about uh, you know, shifts and changes in the Middle East, Africa. So again, the, there's not gonna be a lack of issues. I think it's going to be the bandwidth to address them and uh, making sure that we are in alignment as we meet those challenges. Hmm. No, absolutely. And I think we are happy to hear that there is this expectation of alignment that, as you have mentioned, allied-centric approach, that actually, of course, there is a chance, an opportunity to, to restore transatlantic unity or this feeling and trust, which has been somehow a little bit diminished in the previous four years. Even though some would say, look, I mean, also the cooperation military domain was quite successful also previously. 
But if we come back to this transatlantic um, solidarity feeling or notion, um, strategic autonomy, it, does it make things easier? Would you say that this what should be dropped by Europeans or uh, Europeans uh, should take still more responsibility? Because there's always a little bit ambiguity in, in, in discussing it because of course we expect that Europeans are taking some responsibility in their own hands. But at the same time, we are critical when it starts to be somehow more autonomous in its, its narrative. So how you look at this on European activities, on European narratives? So in some ways, Europe has been working on strategic autonomy since the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, developing, uh, you know, the euro, a currency that has, you know, independence that Europe can assert um, a, a stronger role in international monetary policy. Um, the, the, the creation of institutions, whether that's the European External Action Service and others, it is to create um, that, that stronger, more independent policy voice. So this is nothing new, uh, but you're absolutely right. It has become now this overarching slogan. And, and again, I think it's designed to do several things create and, and deep, more deeply integrate European institutions and identity. That's always been the case. It is also designed to be independent from the United States uh, and not to have to not only depend on Europe, uh, sorry, US militarily, but also to protect it from uh, the US and sanction behavior. And, you know, when it did not agree with you know, the United States, when its allies don't agree with it, the United States takes some steps to punish allies uh, when they do not agree with its direction of travel. And so some of that was to, to protect um, from that punishment. So I, I understand the growth and the development of, of strategic autonomy. What concerns me about how it's being used today um, and I'm sure European colleagues would say that I, I don't have this right, but let me sort of walk you through. What concerns me now as I hear strategic, strategic autonomy used more and more frequently, it's about creating equidistance between the United States, China, and Russia. Europe is not equidistance from China and the US. Europe is in, in a Western community of values and principles. And what I hear about strategic autonomy is, don't, don't get me involved in your confrontations. I, I don't wanna be pulled into conflict. I just want everything to be stable so I can go ahead and develop economically and, and make sure everyone has a peaceful existence. That's not the world we live in. Mm -hmm. We have to be much more purposeful and now shaping the international order using values and rules of law and norms, which I know Europe champions, but you can't just talk the talk. You have to walk the walk and you have to sacrifice. You have to sacrifice market access to China because of their behavior. You have to sacrifice Nord Stream 2 for Russia's behavior. This is painful, difficult stuff to do. But if you aren't prepared to sacrifice, then it sounds to me that you're not prepared to uphold the values that you state you want to uphold. So we, both sides, both the US and the European Union have a lot of work to do, but you don't get, I, I think you just don't get the free pass that please don't bring me into your conflicts. Well, you know, the United States has uh, provided a, 
a, a, a security umbrella for Europe to be able to gain strong institutions and integrate and be successful. Europe's success is America's success. You are, are in my view, Europe is America's greatest foreign policy achievement since the end of the Second World War. But we can't take those achievements for granted. They're now being challenged profoundly by strategic competitors, by regional actors, non-state mm -hmm. actors. Now we have to double down. And I feel like everyone's letting their foot off the gas because this is getting hard. And we have to redouble our efforts, put our foot on the gas to make sure the international system, uh, as it transforms with digital transformation, um, that we still have the value system as our operating system in the 21st century. We've got a lot of work to Mm. No, absolutely. I think that, of course, for Europeans, there are quite difficult choices sometimes. And uh, we are where we are. Russia is uh, neighboring us. And of course, China is not too far away as well. And sometimes there is a feeling that we should take those, we should make those choices and take, take, take stands. Um, but exactly. So what would be your assessment on European policy on China? Because you mentioned the investment agreement as sort of present uh, almost to the new administration, uh, not a very good one. Would you see some repercussions of it? Would you see some implications of it? Would you see that US new administration would, I would not say pressurize, but still would give some hints and advice to revise some of the elements of it? How you would look in that direction? Because of course for Europeans, still there is understanding, yes, China is a strategic to some extent partner, but also the challenger. It is a strategic rival in many ways, but at the same time, you need to cooperate economically. It will be, at, in decades time, a, a, the most, uh, the biggest um, global economy. So how you would see this one? Would you see that there will be need for Europeans to adjust, to keep, to sustain that tra transatlantic link and mutual trust? So I think it's really important to, to note that uh, Europe's, um, views towards China have certainly evolved. I think more rapidly evolved over the last 12 to 24 months. Um, they're you know, beginning to understand that Chinese economic activities um, uh, have lots of strings attached. Um, there are political issues in relationship to them. Sometimes the infrastructure that they're producing does not fall into line with Europe's uh, green and you know climate standards and so you've seen europe trying to develop uh investment screening tools that's great but again mm -hmm. it's slow uh, the member states have to to evolve those tactics uh we've seen i i think perhaps the one of the greatest successes and a lot of it was due due to very energetic japanese diplomacy was japan the european union and the us created uh, you know, a statement of principles on uh, industrial subsidies and focused on uh, Chinese state-owned enterprise behavior. That's a great success that demonstrates that we want to fight for our, uh, our values. So there's been some, you know, I think some appropriate recognition that Chinese economic uh, behavior is not necessarily conducive uh, to EU standards uh, and, and norms and, and behavior. The, the problem is, um, and this is, US has the same challenge as well, it is the, the access to the Chinese market that overrides everything uh, because uh, Europe, Germany in particular, 
Its export model is very dependent on the growth of the Chinese market. So a lot of things are being sacrificed uh, to retain mm. that market access at the same time that China is undercutting uh, Europe's competitiveness, econ future economic competitiveness, and of course, uh, violating a range of international human rights uh, and international legal norms from the Nine Dash Line in the South China Sea and uh, to, to Hong Kong and the national security law. So I think there is an opportunity here for, for uh, Europe to, to adjust its policies, but we have to do this together. Um, and there is both an economic dimension of this. This is essential why we have to get the WTO back and running if it can be successful um, and, and reform. We have got to have much stronger collaboration with the EU and the so-called Indo-Pacific Quad of uh, Australia and Japan, India and Korea. We're closely with our, our Asian partners as well that are facing these challenges. So this is a real, this is going to be a real concentration and focus uh, of effort. And it's going to require sacrifice and change. And I, I'm a little worried that um, because of the economic weakness that we're all experiencing from the pandemic, uh, and Europe's economic weakness, this is going to be a harder choice. And they're going to want to not have to choose between the United States and China. But I fear it's not the United States forcing the, the, the choice per se, but I think it's going to be um, Chinese behavior and European realization that this, they cannot have the market access and ignore everything else. That is just not a sustainable policy right now. Mm, excellent. Thanks. Uh... You already implied or implicitly actually indicated there are differences among European countries. So different countries within Europe also approach things differently. Of course, we are united sometimes, but we are very frequently disunited. Uh, and we are different. There is diversity of European countries. And of course, one of, the, one of the top agenda issues for Joe Biden has been also the democracy promotion, democracy idea. Uh, about European countries, to be a little bit devil's advocate here, would you say that all European countries at the moment are democratic? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you see that there is some backsliding on democracy? What about some European and NATO allies, very important allies from us strategically, but at the same time with some challenges on the democratic agenda? How you would see those developments? Can they influence this democratic backsliding challenge? influence transatlantic trust and uh, development? Yeah, I know it's, it's such a great question. I just want to take a quick step back and, and recognize that the shift that just happened with the most recent uh, 17 plus one meeting between EU and non-EU nations and, and China, the fact that the Baltic states did not go with the representation that it once was, that that forum is losing it, this tells you that there's great evolution. So I just, I, I failed to, to mention that. <laughs> now to, to your question, oh, I, this is the, I have to say, the democracy, rule of law, and anti-corruption. And I want to underscore mm. the anti-corruption part of this as well. Um, I am the most enthusiastic about this item uh, in the Biden administration's agenda. And I hope it's great application, uh, not just to countries uh, outside of alliances, but I actually hope there's a more focused approach for um, our allies and partners that are, are no longer uh, consolidated democracies. And this isn't my opinion, this is Freedom House, the non-governmental organization that has tracked uh, particularly Central and Eastern European uh, democratic development for decades. Um, this is fact that um, the space for media freedom, 
for uh, openness and transparency, judicial freedom and independence is being lost. And we have to, together with the EU and individual member states, we have to fight harder to maintain our democracy. Look, I mean, this is where the US is not pointing a finger. Our democracies are fragile. They require daily defense. And uh, we understood that boy, very poignantly on January the 6th when our capital and our democracy was attacked from the inside. We have to fight for this. And for far too long, it's been more politically convenient to look the other way, to coddle it, to try to pacify it. And all that's happened, it's gotten worse. And I don't say this with any joy. I say it with the deepest of regret that some of America's closest allies and partners, Poland, Hungary, uh, one can now add Slovenia to this, uh, are, are uh, damaging their democracy daily. And that will reduce the ability for the US to engage and work with those countries. And that weakens the alliance, the NATO alliance. Uh, Turkey, we can add Turkey to that uh, issue as well. So we have got to figure out a formula to help our, our allies regain their footing. And I hope they help us regain our footing as well. It, it, we have to hold hands and cross this democratic street together. Um, but let, you know, and I sort of write back at, you know, sometimes my colleagues in the Baltic states, when I would raise issues of illiberalism in Hungary and Poland, they would look down and go, well, but we need them for security. Mm. What are what what are you what security is there? What are you defending if there is no democracy? So uh, you know we all have to stop um, looking the other way and looking at our shoes and wishing and hoping this goes away. We have to look it in the eye. We have to do it out of friendship and partnership. But we have to start, I think, exhibiting a lot of tough love to our partners and allies, because if they cease to be democracies, they are more susceptible to malign influence, whether that's Russia and China, Hungary exceeds expectations in both those fronts, Turkey, the Turkish-Russian relationship. I mean, this is dangerous, dangerous stuff, and we've allowed it to go on for much too long. So this is an area that I hope the U.S. and the EU can cooperate more. Uh, again, not because we seek to punish, but we seek to get folks back on a better path we have got to talk about this at NATO, full stop. Uh, it, is, it is, I think, endangering uh, the strength of the alliance. So this is a big, big topic. It's going to be tough, tough stuff. But if, if, if we continue to do what we have been doing, which is nothing, we will have a bigger problem than we have today. And today we have a very big problem. Absolutely. So I think the tough love is a good description. So what should be <laughs> uh, applied uh, in, the, in the process? Would you say that this tough love could be somehow channeled through three uh, C's initiative? Trump, uh, Trump developed it. So of course it was about, in a sense, interconnectivity at the same time, a bit like dividing Europe uh, in two parts to some extent. At least that was also the perception in some parts of the Europe how you would see the three C's initiative developing and perhaps exactly the democracy building, democracy promotion can be, can be also done through the three C's initiative because those countries you mentioned, Slovenia, uh, Poland, Hungary, they are part of uh, the initiative. 
So um, sort of like the EU and China, my own personal view, I, I have evolved on the three C's initiative. I have to say I was initially um, very skeptical of it because I saw it as a divisive tactic, not because mm -hmm. I think that mm -hmm. we should not support more infrastructure, north, north south connectors. It's, it's not that, you know, the, the understanding of it, but it was designed to be divisive. I've come to appreciate now that other EU members and the EU itself sees it as complementary uh, to broader uh, EU infrastructure initiatives and things. I, I think I've become more hopeful of, about it, but I have to say I, I still do reserve a little skepticism of, of or, you know, this is not about the U. I sort of feel like it's a reverse strategic autonomy. <laughs> it's not the U.S. trying to, um, you know, exert itself. Uh, we have to complement one another. There is an enormous amount of infrastructure that needs to take that needs to be developed in in, in Central Europe and in, in the Western Balkans in particular. We haven't had a good answer for that, and China has certainly in the Western Balkans, has opened that aperture, even in Greece, for a lot of infrastructure. Again, that infrastructure is not necessarily hardwired for Euro-Atlantic integration. And CSAS, we've done a series of studies that looks at Chinese economic influence in the Western Balkans. And I have to tell you, it's really an eye-opening um, analysis of the extent to that. So there's enormous work to be done but we can't just keep inserting ourselves and saying, well, this is, this is our independent way of doing it. We have to work together with Europe to, to, to bring that. And if this three C's initiative can evolve into that, I, my skepticism will dissipate and I will be supportive. You know, I don't know whether it can be a vehicle to democracy. Andres, I think this is, this is uh, I don't know if I have a great, brilliant plan for this, but I think it has to happen bilaterally first. The U.S. is going to have to be much more actively and engaged in all of our allies. If we want to deepen uh, an allied-centric approach to our foreign policy challenges, we have to deepen our relationship with every one of the countries and the multilateral structures that support them. The, the U.S.-EU relationship, obviously, NATO will be, I hope, considerably politically strengthened uh, in the years to come. Um, but I, I don't know if it's creating a new institution. I think we've got to hold people accountable. And just as we said, you know, sacrificing for our values and interests, this tough love may require some pain, but hopefully it's like, like chemotherapy and ex excising a cancer. The treatment is really rough, but you can only get mm -hmm. better after you get treatment. So let's hope we, we get this illiberalism out of our system a little bit. We're all flirting with it different ways. And, and let's get uh, back to daily protecting and defending our democratic institutions, fighting corruption, because our strategic competitors are using uh, that type of malign influence and we're helping them degrade our own democracy. So we've got to start self-harm here and, and hopefully uh, help project more confidence and uh, more appeal to democracy. Uh, we've been on the back foot for too long. It's time to be on the front foot on this right now. Absolutely. I think that I can just fully share your thoughts on being and strengthening this like-mindedness of uh, the, the, the same value community. And I think there are a lot of things to do. And as you mentioned, democracy never stops to be built. So you have to build democracy every day and strengthen and, pr and protect it. Um, a little bit switching at the, almost at the end of our conversation. It, it runs so 
quickly, and I would love to, to debate more, but I, since I see that we are really starting to run out of time, to your field of very top expertise, uh, namely Arctic, uh, I would put it from Latvian perspective. Finally, Latvia is applying to the Arctic Council, to the non-permanent member of the Arctic Council. Do you see any opportunity for actually us to join, any chance for us to join? Take into account that Russia will take over the Arctic Council presidency. Take into account that I think not every country is very much willing to open and take in some additional countries, which could make life more difficult. Because sometimes it sees there is a there are conflicts in some domains, but the Arctic Council is a little bit compartmentalized, sort of let's keep away conflicts from the Arctic to some extent. How you would see this development, how you would see that Estonia and Latvia is willing, are willing to, to apply and be part of the Arctic Council community? Well, I'm delighted that, that, that you're seeking a permanent observer status. Um, uh, you can honestly say you are a near Arctic state. Uh, I, Chinese colleagues have said that they are a near-Arctic state, but you can actually have the geographic right to say that. Um, we have done an extensive amount of, of research and study on the, on the Arctic. And in fact, a few years ago, produced a report that called for enhanced deterrence in the North. So that's where I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you know, the Arctic and in, even into the security context, because as we see uh, Russia take steps to re restore its military posture. It's not exactly going to be restored to what it was in the height of the Cold War, but we're seeing uh, Russia really shift its military posture in the Arctic. NATO has had, and uh, with you know, direct bilateral support from the US, UK, Norway, and others, have had to address these shifts in, in, in military, uh, in Russia's military modernization. I think the Arctic uh, will continue to be a, a focus for the U.S. national security community. And what we've seen from Russia is that, you know, we, I, I think this is, a, this is a criticism of, of U.S. and NATO planning, we silo, we look at the Baltic region, we look at the North Atlantic, and then maybe if we have to, we sort of look at the Arctic and what that means. When Russia exercises militarily, that is one theater of operation. Uh, what, what exercising that begins in the Kola Peninsula, we see that engagement in the North Atlantic and the Bering Sea. So we have to think about this region more broadly. I would certainly argue um, that in some ways, we, NATO has a don't ask, don't tell policy about the Arctic, that, that there's, there's this movement in, in the Arctic. So we're all from a security standpoint, I know you and I deal a lot on the security part of it. It's gonna be important for all of the Nordic and Baltic states to understand these shifts uh, that are occurring. But you're absolutely right. What brings us to the Arctic is the dramatic environmental transformation of the region. Um, and the Arctic Council is dedicated to focus on sustainable development and environmental protection. Mm. So it is a good forum. You can't talk about security, but it's not allowed in the declaration. Um, it's, uh, you know, eight, the five coastal states, the three near uh, uh, states, uh, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland, but the indigenous communities are also part of that conversation. So on the one hand, I think it's fantastic that uh, Latvia and Estonia want to join as observers. We need international scientific collaboration. We need that type of cooperation, but the Arctic Council isn't going to help us in that security conversation, in that geopolitics that, that are emerging. 
China's scientific and economic presence in the Arctic, Russia's military presence in the Arctic, we need to have, we need to create a forum for that discussion to take place. Uh, and I'm hoping that we can do that uh, in the future. So stay tuned, uh, more on the Arctic. I certainly encourage the Institute to begin to study the Arctic as a broader region for both the, the, the environmental impact, permafrost thaw, ocean acidification, uh, the, the Greenland ice sheet diminishment, as well as for the security and the geopolitics. It's not an exceptional region, it just has to be well managed through these challenging geopolitical days. So great question. Let's get a project started on the Arctic right now. Heather, <laughs> it was a pleasure, so absolutely. But the last one would be on what else, apart from actually devoting more attention to the Arctic and finding a new ways of interacting and cooperating on the platform of the Arctic, what else we, the Baltic countries, could do to strengthen our bilateral linkage with the United States. How we can contribute also strengthening the transatlantic links and uh, alliance and spirit of the yeah. alliance. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, first and foremost, we need a strong Latvian voice in the European Union, um, making sure that as you, as you noted, both the US and EU member states are starting to become more and more protectionist. This is this is going, I understand the politics of it. It goes in the opposite direction of strengthening the transatlantic economy. So we need to have Latvia fight through that a little bit and encourage uh, the EU to remain, um, you know, very much uh, focused on developing economic uh, relations uh, with the U.S. So that's sort of uh, on, on the economic front. On the foreign policy front, sort of continue to do what you were doing, we are seeing the impact of Baltic diplomacy um, in shaping the EU foreign and security policy towards Belarus, Ukraine, mm -hmm. Georgia, of course, Russia, and Russia's behavior is, is forcing the EU to make some important adjustments. Now that we have, you know, the European um, Global Magnitsky Act, uh, uh, you know, a similar function to that. I think we're going to see the Biden administration take a much more active and engaged uh, pursuit of, of uh, democracy, rule of law uh, in the post-Soviet space. I you did see that activism a bit in the Trump administration in Belarus, but I'm not sure it was well understood of its, of its goals and its allied uh, approach. So Latvia can play a huge role uh, in that. We talked about China. We talked about thinking, rethinking uh, the enthusiasm uh, about the economic relationship with China because of the profound foreign policy, security, as well as um, international legal challenges to that. So, you know, stay active, stay engaged. Lots of diplomacy uh, with NATO and hopefully the new strategic concept, you're going to have to balance a little bit from the, the UK's departure from the EU and stepping forward with like-minded within, and within the EU to continue to fight for the strong transatlantic partnerships. So uh, I hope we can strengthen US companies in, in Latvia, continue to do our own homework democratically when it comes to working with ethnic minorities and strengthening mm -hmm. democracy and strengthening citizens' views that 
the NATO and the, the Euro-Atlantic partnership is the powerful force that it is. So lots of work, lots of exciting times, and hopefully after the pandemic, we can start seeing one another in person again very soon. Heather, it would be a pleasure, and thank you so much for those valuable insights and uh, valuable advice. So absolutely, I think there is a lot of opportunity, there is a lot of space for cooperating and new administration, I think, comes with a lot of uh, new hope as well, also here in the Baltic countries. So to think and to rethink uh, how we re can reinvigorate our own democracies and also our transatlantic linkages. So thank you once more for your advice, for your insights, and absolutely we should continue our cooperation. And it seems there is additional field of cooperation, the Arctic. We've been uh, silent observers, but now it seems we want, uh, we are willing to become more active observers and participants of the, the whole process, which of course involves not only security, but as you mentioned, environment and climate, it influences uh, all of us. So. That's why, once more, thank you so much, and I very much hope that uh, it should be and will be continued, and we also meet in person, and we'll be able to exchange our thoughts in person as well. Thank you.